Welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast, insights and ideas for RIAs presented by Dynasty Financial Partners, a podcast dedicated to sharing some of the best practices, fresh thinking, and new perspectives in the independent wealth management industry. Your host for today's episode is Ed Friedman, Director at Dynasty Financial Partners. Welcome to Dynasty's Powering Independence Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Ed Friedman, and I'm thrilled to be joined by my co-host, Gordon Roth, Senior Vice President at Dynasty. On today's podcast, we'll be exploring the role that marketing, or better yet, effective marketing plays in establishing and building a successful RIA. I'm also thrilled to be joined by my three guests today. Joining us first will be Gordy Abel, Chief Marketing Officer at Dynasty. Prior to joining Dynasty, Gordy was at a little-known firm called Google, heading up the uh, financial services uh, division of Google, and uh, prior to that, spent some time, I believe, at J.P. Morgan and BlackRock. Joining Gordy as well will be Justin Barish. We refer to Justin as our wonder kid inside of (laughs) digital marketing. Justin is uh, the vice president of digital marketing here at Dynasty and started uh, really in Silicon Valley uh, with a couple of startups uh, in Silicon Valley. And last but certainly not least, joining us from the exotic location of King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, is Paul Strid from Consentus Wealth Management. Paul is one of the co-founders of Consentus Wealth, along with his brother Eric and his father Gerald. And prior to establishing or joining Consentus, Paul had spent some time at Credit Suisse in institutional equity sales and is a graduate of Georgetown University. So, gentlemen, thank you for, uh, for joining us on today's podcast. Gordy, I'm going to turn to you first. Uh, What I find really interesting uh, on a statistic that I recently read is only about a third of RAAs have any type of marketing plan. And of those third, only about 11% have implemented any part of that marketing plan. Why do you think that is? Yeah, those are are really, you know, interesting stats and certainly uh, could be surprising, but in some ways, uh, not really. Um, And, you know, Ed, it's really important as as we think about you know marketing and the role of marketing within a firm, um, because having a, a strategic marketing plan can really have a positive impact on the overall long term growth uh, of a firm as well as um, the overall valuation of the firm. But as I talk with advisors and, and work with firms, um, I think there's a couple reasons why um, maybe marketing uh, doesn't have the role or the significance within a firm that it should. Um, and I think the first reason is that, you know, many advisors simply view marketing as just an extension of business development, right? So uh, when we talk about marketing, it's often around, I need a new pitch book, or I need a new brochure, or I want to update the copy on my website, you know, because I've added a new service, or maybe it's let's do a, a LinkedIn campaign, because I want to try using digital to get, you know, new prospects in the door. But, you know, they don't realize that, you know, there's a, a whole other Uh, arm or platform within marketing that can impact their business beyond business development. Um, Second, I think, you know, there usually isn't a dedicated person within the firm really kind of, you know, that's in charge of thinking about marketing, right? So it kind of sits across maybe a bunch of people or it's a a 5% time of my job, right? So it kind of falls between the cracks and maybe, you know, doesn't get the priority it should. Um, And then I think third, you know, advisors just don't know what they don't know, right? You know, they're not 
uh, career professional marketers, right? So um, while they may be consumers in general, right, they they don't really know how to think about the impact of marketing, how to strategically plan uh, marketing. So um, that's why it's important, I think, to have partners, right, to, to help you. So, you know, as we think about the team at Dynasty, for example, right, we we brought in the experts across brand development, digital marketing, PR and communications, client experience. And, you know, I think the uh, the advisors who, you know, are successful in really building and growing their business leverage that, right? And I think when you have that partnership, right, we begin to see the plans take place and we, we begin to see them uh, implemented. Well, and that's great, Gordy. Paul, uh, Gordy brings up a good point, and I think you're in a very unique position to kind of talk to this. He said that the advisors don't know what they don't know. And that's because many of them, like yourself and, and Eric and, and Zeke, came out of a big wirehouse, big bank world where you were very limited in what you could do uh, with marketing. So talk a little bit about how you guys made that transition from a very kind of closed world relative to marketing to now kind of this wide open space. Sure. Um, you know, originally when we so we were at a big wirehouse firm and when we left that firm, we, it was like an oasis of things that we could do. And we probably, you know, for years, there's this pent up, um, demand or, you know, want from us to be able to do all this different stuff. The, the prime one example we use is my brother wanted to write a book and the wirehouses said, you know, no way we're going to let you write a book. So when we broke, we, I think it was great that we were able to, we wrote the book and we did a bunch of things, but we, we almost overstepped our bounds a little bit because there's so much cool stuff that we wanted to try out and we tried everything. And I think as we've learned over the years, um, that we've, we've kind of fine tuned the tools and the methods that we use and we've learned what we want to do and what we don't want to do. And we've also discovered that we need help with that. Um, because like you said, we grew up in a world where, you know, our job was to be the financial advisor and run kind of our business. And some of the marketing was done by the wirehouses. And now we have the freedom to do that, which is great, but we also have the, the responsibility and the workload to do that. Um, and we're, I'm busy doing a hundred other things, let alone trying to update our website and, and do our social media. And then also kind of do lead gen and marketing to that respect. So it's been a learning curve to get there uh, that we, 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 I agree with Gordy that it's, it's actually a kind of a full-time job and we've, we've hired some people to do that, which we'll talk about later. Um, but it was kind of drinking from the fire hose to start and we've learned that we've had to refine that journey a little bit so that we can concentrate on what we can do, what get, we need someone else to do, and what's the message that we want to deliver out to the world. Wonderful. And you just touched on something that I think is really interesting, um, this concept of social media marketing. Uh, I know inside of the big banks and the wirehouses, it was just a battle to even be able to establish a LinkedIn uh, profile, much less market to that. You guys have taken that to the next level. And I think a lot of the work that uh, Justin does with all of our network firms really talks about the ability to scale, leverage, and reach large audiences with that. So Justin, if you could talk a little bit about this concept of social or digital marketing uh, inside the RIA space. Yeah, absolutely, Ed. Uh, thanks for having me here today. This is something that, that you know, I could record 10 podcasts and go on and on and on and on <laughs> about. So uh, please shut me up if uh, 
whenever you feel the need to. Um, so with regard to social, there's there's three primary reasons. Um, and you know, really what my job as a as an outsourced digital marketing or social media consultant is is to empower our advisors with the information to make the right decision for their business. And typically when I'm having a conversation around social media, I like to bring up three reasons why it's something that that any advisory firm, especially an advisory firm focusing on the ultra high net worth, um, three reasons that they can that they should consider. Um, and I think the first reason is, is it's absolutely the most scalable and efficient way uh, to share your brand. Uh, you know, as a as an RIA, as a as an ultra high net worth advisory firm, your brand and your messaging and your positioning are all extremely important elements of how your clients, prospects, and COIs uh, view you and relate to you. And um, I'll tell you a quick story. We have one firm in our network, a big um, big billion dollar plus firm, got offices uh, got offices across the country. And I was having a conversation around social media with their managing director. And uh, to be frank, he was a skeptic uh, of using LinkedIn. He, his perspective essentially was, you know, I've built my expensive website. It's got animations. There's a mountain on there that's rotating. And uh, we put all our content on our website. It's a branded experience. And that's that's really where we want to drive our traffic. And uh, as, a, as, as a, I guess as a self-proclaimed data geek, I said, uh, I said to this gentleman, well, why don't we take a look at the data and see if we can use metrics to validate, you know, what you just told me about your strategy. And we saw a surprising result. So with this website, again, that had been highly invested in and had all this content, uh, we looked at the traffic to the website, and we actually compared that traffic number to the total traffic that was on the firm's then completely dormant LinkedIn page. And uh, what we saw was really interesting. Um, In the entire year, uh, in the entire year of 2017, the website actually had less traffic than the first quarter of 2018 on a dormant LinkedIn profile. Huh. Interesting, right? Really interesting. And this this is uh this isn't necessarily because they were doing anything special on their LinkedIn profile. They were actually not doing anything at all. Uh, what this was about is leveraging leveraging consumer behavior. There's a reason that the social networks are are some of the most visited and trafficked websites uh, ever, and the reason for that is because they're they're extremely good at providing the the user the user of the social network with timely and relevant content. Whether it's a LinkedIn, a Facebook, a Twitter, the reason people come back to these uh, come back to these uh, sources time and time again is because they're exceptionally good at delivering timely and relevant content, and. Um, and that's no mystery. So when we saw when we saw this dormant LinkedIn channel was driving uh, was driving so much traffic, it was really uh, just about being a bit empathetic, understanding the consumer, understanding the consumer's preferences, and then tapping into it. We're going to come back to that in a little bit because I also want to talk about using focused marketing, which I know you've become sure. uh, an expert in. But Paul, I want to turn to you because I know at Consentus. You guys have been using LinkedIn quite a bit and effectively to kind of build out your database of of prospects and use that to kind of drive some of your other marketing campaigns. Yeah, so first I want to just piggyback on the end of what Justin just said to reiterate the fact that um, whether or not you use it, people the first thing people do is they're going to Google your name. And so I ask all your listeners, go put your name in Google and see what comes up. Most likely, it's going to be a LinkedIn profile. And so people are going to you know, immediately look to your LinkedIn profile to check you out, probably now before they go to your website, because they want to see who else they may be connected with. Maybe they want to see your education. So I, I you know, totally reiterate what, what Justin just said, that if nothing else, even if you're not going to post on it, 
you better make sure that it's it's tight and it matches your branding for the other, you know, what your website says because people are going to look at it. We actually put our LinkedIn profile on our website in our bios and we put it in our auto signatures when we for our emails because we know the people use it. Um, so uh, to answer your question, um, yeah, we've been uh, over the last year really um, more aggressive with LinkedIn. Um, it's such a natural. Um, area for us to be able to market ourselves because what it does is it first it immediately gives us an opportunity to expand our network outside of the normal network that we're in right you know the the, the parents from our kids schools and the golf course that we're a member of or church group or you know the traditional network that you would have what what LinkedIn has allowed us to do is say, okay, well, let's take the network that we have and use the people that they know and expand it based on the people that they know that they're connected with. So, you know, we started with our clients and our COIs and we started to connect with people that they're connected with. And then we actually then go through kind of a review process once someone connects with us and we'll actually review kind of who they are as best we can. And we've got some other tools we use to do that, um, to figure out, you know, not simply, okay, do they, are they a C-suite executive, but we can actually figure out, you know, what their net worth is in some ways. Um, but we'll look at who they know. Are they connected with a client of ours? Are they connected with someone else that we know? And we'll put them in our, our CRM system and start to try and create move from a digital connection to a tangible connection where we've actually engaged with them and they've responded back in some way. And that may be an email, that may be a LinkedIn message. Um, you know, the goal we're trying to create is to get them to actually respond back to us in some way. And then we've got an actual real connection. We've now made, a, you know, turned a, a virtual connection into a real connection. And then we've got different things we do depending upon what type of personnel we might invite them to lunch. We might just, you know, send them content and put them in a campaign over time. Um, we've used interns to do it. We've done it. I've got some filters that just run that look at, okay, let's look at in a 50 mile radius, everyone who's a C-level executive that's changed jobs. And every week I get an email from LinkedIn, here are the hundred people or the 50 people. And we look at those people and we invite them to connect to our network. Um, we try to actually limit the number of um, financial services people that are connecting to us because the, the algorithm will then recommend more like-minded people to our, to, you know, to connect to our profile. We're trying to, you know, market to the, to the non-financial services people. Um, so we try to limit that a little bit and we really do concentrate on building that network out. And then that's our network of names. And then we make a new connection that's now, you know, 500 new connections that we can look at and say, okay, all right, we now know Joe. Who does Joe know? Um, and we've got a list uh, that we look at. And when we do meet with our clients and our client comes in and they have a review after the review or if we're calling them on their birthday, we've got an actual list of people that we, at least we know they're connected with and we can ask them about. So it's in, in many ways, it's like a new version of referral marketing. Um, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a new index card, right? You right. know, you used to have the Rolodex of index cards, and you'd write down the names of the people that you think that person knew. Well, at least now you you don't know the level of connection. I think that's the thing that we're, you know, takes a little bit of human ingenuity to get to. Like, all right, I'm I'm connected to 500 people. I don't know all 500 of the people I'm connected with, you know. So when we ask 
Ed. Who does Ed know of the, you know, we know Ed, you and I are both mutually connected to 50 different people. Well, of the 50 people that we're connected with, how many of them do you really know? And of those, are there any that you think you'd be able to connect us with or refer us to? It, it's um, an interesting concept, Paul, and it, it turns a little bit on its head, this concept of, you know, we all grew up with this phrase in our head, it's who you know that counts. And from what I'm hearing from you in this discussion is what is now important is it's who knows you that's important yeah. and using LinkedIn and social media to kind of create that that awareness. And, and with that being said, Gordy, I want to turn to you for a second, because understanding that people now are starting to look, as Paul said, at the LinkedIn page and, and as Justin said, they're going there first, maybe before they go to a website the way you position yourself in, in, and I know you use this phrase and do a lot of work in this concept of brand DNA, right? Defining who you are, the positioning that you want to put outside in the marketplace, right? Um, and kind of guides everything going forward. If you could talk a little bit about what it means to define, develop, and then establish your brand DNA. Yeah. Uh, great question, Ed. And, you know, Taking a bigger step back, um, you know, a, a lot of firms, right, are built on, you know, maybe uh, a, a single advisor in the marketplace, right, with their personal brand, right? And that's extremely important, right, because it's a, it's a relationship business. But oftentimes, you know, the first touch point, right, will be the brand of the firm, right? So, you know, what does, what does your brand signify, right? What does it convey? And, you know, uh, a lot of times firms will, you know, kind of maybe have a little story about where they got their name, right? Or, you know, they picked the color blue for a certain reason. But, you know, when you define your brand and you have a brand DNA, um, you know, it helps you be more consistent. Um, it kind of helps the entire firm convey the message. Um, and, I, and I think it really helps, you know, build a point of differentiation in the marketplace. So, you know, uh, a brand DNA really encompasses a few things, um, and it's a, a work that we do with the firms uh, to to really help them with that that point of differentiation. But um, the components really kind of consist of you know identifying you know what we call the truth, right? So why do you even exist? Why is the firm uh, in business, right? And we talk a lot about that, right? Because uh, it's important, right, for people to understand you know why they would connect with you and want to work with you. Um, second, we talk about, you know, the vision of the firm, a vision statement, which is usually your North Star, right? Where are you headed, right? Where do you want to take your clients? Um, we then talk about the mission of the firm, right? So, you know, what do you do every day to get there, to get to that North Star? Um, equally as important, we talk about uh, the brand's personality and values, right? So, you know, are, are you a brand at a party, right? You know, that's maybe out there talking to a bunch of people, right? Or is your brand's personality maybe more soft and quiet and you're at the bar having a one-on-one -on -one conversation? Um, the values are important, right? Because it, it, it's what people can relate to. Um, and then we talk about things like positioning, right? So what is that, that one or two uh, line message, right? That we can say across different channels. So long-winded way of saying, you know, there's a, a lot of different elements and components to a brand. Um, but when we have a, a strong brand DNA, um, it acts as a lens and a filter, right? So that when we need to make decisions as a firm, right, you know, whether that's uh, hiring a new person, whether it's uh, bringing on uh, a new client, uh, whether it's how we answer the phone, whether it's deciding whether or not we want to do a sponsorship, um, it all should go back to the brand DNA, right, through that lens and filter to help us make the right decision so that everything we do 
ties back to the brand. Uh, and, and again, that really helps us be consistent and it, it helps with amplification of the brand. And you've heard me say this many times. One of my favorite phrases, what it means to have established a successful brand is when you become the answer to the question. Yep. When somebody in King of Prussia, let's say, Paul, has a, uh, a monetization event, creating your brand means that they're coming to Consentus Wealth um, to do that. And I thought what was interesting, um, because I've seen the work, uh, Paul, that you and Eric did with Gordy on the brand DNA, one of your kind of defining points is humor. And I thought that was spot on for you guys at Consentus, especially with, uh, with your father, Zeke. Talk a little bit about your brand DNA exercise and journey that you went through with, uh, with Gordy. Yeah, so we went through the process with Gordy, which was great. Um, and it's what we, we always kind of had messaging, right? But we never really, it was scattershot a little bit. Like we'd, we'd come out with something, but we never followed up with it. And what the brand DNA allowed us to do was, is to, to better document. And then when we're talking with the marketing firm or whomever that may be, we have a document that we can refer to that says, hey, this is the, these are the rules and the guidelines about who we are and what we want to put out into the world. Um, and a lot of it started with, so the reason we chose our name, it's consentus means harmony in Latin. And so, and we used in the past, this idea of clarity, vision, and results was kind of our, our tagline. So we, we took that and we just kind of, we fine tuned that with Gordy Tup and we decided to just make, well, not decided, but we continued to, to make it so that it was a little more clear, a little more concise. And so now, you know, our vision is, I'm just looking at it now, promote harmony in all aspects of life for the families that we serve. And our positioning is quality of life through clarity and vision. Um, so we use those as kind of guiding principles when we're thinking about um, what do we want to put out from a marketing perspective. And Gordy continues when we have some calls with Gordy, he continually reminds us if we're going to have an event, you know, some client event or something else, he's always reminding us, hey, try and see if you can position it in a way that speaks to how this will make you have more clarity in your life. So it's a good, you know, grounding mechanism to get us back to that same branding every time instead of, you know, at reinventing the wheel every time we put something else out. Uh, interestingly, when you said humor, I think we're in the process right now of redesigning our website because it's been four years and it's, it's just time to do it. And I think Gordy's seen some of the, the designs that we're working on right now. And there's a, an element of humor to it. We, we, we keep, we use the example of, we don't want, um, pictures of lighthouses and people strolling on old couple strolling on the beach. Um, that's not our, that's not our brand. That's not our image. I'm not saying that that's bad. That's just not our brand or image. We have what's coming out is something that's a little bit more, um, well, we would say approachable. It's cartoony. That's car kind of cartoon based a little bit. Um, so it has an element of humor in it. It has an element. There's, there's some words we use welcoming, um, it's got that element in it. So it's a great way when we met with some of the designers, we gave them our brand DNA piece to, as a starting point to say, you know, this is what we stand for. This is who we are. Let's go from there. Well, that's great. And, and Paul, you and Gordy have kind of talked about building this brand DNA and this brand through everything from words, imagery, right, that you just touched on. Mm -hmm. But Justin, as a self-proclaimed data geek, is now looking at marketing in the way I think that we need to today, right? You've got firms like Amazon 
that rely heavily on data or Google that rely heavily on data to fine-tune that marketing and making it more effective and more scalable. So, Justin, if you could talk a little bit more about kind of the data portion of it and how you and the firms use that to be more effective in the marketing and the development of new relationships and new assets. Yeah, absolutely, Ed. So one of my favorite sayings, uh, something that you know, uh, my, my colleagues and team hear all the time is that nobody has a crystal ball. Um, and a gut opinion is really just that. It's a gut opinion. Uh, it's nothing more and it's nothing less. And um, a gut opinion oftentimes is a solid starting point. But it's certainly not a, It's certainly not the north star that you should be following. So um, we we live by three words: test, learn, and refine. I'll repeat that: test, learn, refine, because it's really, really important. So a lot of times, your gut opinion, um, your brand DNA, are, are a fantastic starting point to run your first tests. You collect data on that test. You learn from that data, and you refine. A really simple example to illustrate that point. A lot of times we'll have the discussion uh, with with an RIA around what type of content will resonate more with your constituency, with your clients, uh, with your prospects, with your COIs, financial services, market commentary-related content, or lifestyle-related content. And uh, at the beginning of that discussion, everybody has an opinion. Some folks will say lifestyle content, and others will say, nobody wants to see anything lifestyle-related from us. We are, uh, you know, we're a, a, a serious investment advisory firm. The only thing that should ever come from our brand is a market commentary. And uh, a lot of times I'll challenge an individual with that perspective uh, to run a test to say, put out a post on LinkedIn that showcases a, a team outing or a, or a philanthropic event that your team participated in. And let's put out another post, same time uh, the next week, same day the next week, hold all variables constant around uh, a market commentary. And uh, let's use the data to understand what your constituency wants to hear from you. And and the key metrics we're really looking at there, uh, the big one is called an engagement rate. Engagement rate measures what percentage of the audience who saw your post took an action, action being a like, a comment, a share, a click. And it's it's really important to keep a close eye on that metric because I'm, I'm going to bring it back to the to that theme of empathy. Though it is data and though it is computers and though it is digital behavior, that digital behavior is just a, a representer. It represents a physical behavior. It represents human emotion. And when somebody's clicking on comment and on content and liking content, that's a really good indicator that that's what they're interested in. If we can see on a macro level that the majority of our constituency is engaging with a certain type of content, then why would we not do more of that and less of what they're less interested in and continue to test, learn, and refine? That makes so, total sense. So the, that, let's take that to the, the concept of measurement to like the next stage, which is essentially like an, analyzing cost and return on investment. Sure. Because as, as we speak to uh, many firms across the, the country, we see uh, marketing is this area where it appears to either have massive underinvestment or crazy over overinvestment as well people are people are putting uh, investing an awful lot of money and not getting an awful lot of return how can firms how should a firm think about that if they're trying to decide between marketing initiative a versus marketing initiative b how do you think about that kind of return on investment and measure that yeah gordon uh an interesting place to start, and I think not even just interesting, but uh, extremely important place to start is, you know, marketing really needs to have a seat at the table uh, when you're doing your business planning and goal setting for the year, right? Oftentimes, you know, we see marketing as kind of a, 
a one-off need or, you know, there's a trigger event and someone will say, hey, you know, maybe we should do some marketing, you know, but if we're sitting at the table, uh, you know, and talking about what's going to drive the growth and scale of the business over the next year or two, um, you know, that could be anything from a net new asset goal. Uh, it could be a recruitment goal. Uh, you may have a, a culture building goal. You might uh, have a goal around COI engagement or referral sources. We can then have a discussion around what the right and relevant strategies are from a marketing perspective uh, to help achieve those goals, right? And from there, we can talk about different platforms, uh, different tactics, certainly the metrics and KPIs that tie to it, right? And so when we align marketing strategically to the uh, overall business goals and objectives, right, that's how it becomes a serious investment, right? And we know where we want to place our chips versus at the end of the year, someone looking back at marketing and just seeing it as a cost, right, or a drag on the bottom line. So, you know, I'm always, uh, you know, kind of working with teams and, and questioning, right, and moving them away from shiny object syndrome, right, the the latest and greatest tech phase or, you know, uh, you know, someone saw somebody else do a brochure, so therefore we need to do one too. Um, you know, if it doesn't line back to a business goal and a business metric, right, we, sh we should really consider not doing it. And Paul, you, you and Eric uh, at Consentus have I think certainly over the past year, year and a half, have put a much more focused effort on marketing. And to, to uh, Gordon's question and Gordy's response, have you started to take a look at budgeting and a real focus on what dollars are going to go in which areas and, and what you hope the goals, right, uh, will be from that? Yes. Uh, so, you know, middle of last year when we did our annual offsite, Eric and I were looking at our org chart. Um, and we were trying to decide if we wanted to hire a, a full-time marketing person or, or a part-time or an intern or whatever that may be. And, because, and when we kind of stacked up all the different things that I was doing and the things that we wanted to do, it became really clear that we needed something needed to happen there. We needed to hire somebody or we needed to bring in somebody. So we thought, okay, well, what would it cost us to hire a young kid out of college? let's say it's, you know, 40 grand or whatever it may be, and then you add in benefits and technology costs and taxes and all the rest of it. And, you know, it's somewhere around 50 to 60 grand to have someone here full-time. Um, and we felt like we were at a point where we needed that. Um, now, maybe not full-time, um, but some, someone that could commit a decent amount of, of hours and would cost us a decent amount of money. And instead of doing that, what we decided to do is we found a, a local uh, marketing team that we really like, and we now had a budget. So we knew, okay, well, we can spend, you know, $50,000 a year or 40 or whatever it may be. And that was our budget that we could go to with them. And that budget meaning a labor budget, um, we might exceed that if we wanted to do advertising or something along those lines. But, but more of a, you know, the amount of time that I was spending easily was $50,000 worth of my time because I was doing, you know, on nights and weekends and whatever else it may be, like updating our social media stuff and our websites and trying to design different things. Um, so we've, we found this team, which the benefit and kind of their pitch to us as well, which I've seen happen, is that you're not just getting one person um, that may know how to do, you know, website design better 
we've got a whole team now. They've got a copyright editor. They've got a designer. They've got tech people. They've got strategies. We can talk to them about, you know, strategy. They've got a social media manager. So we now have someone who's managing our social media presence. Um, so our LinkedIn, our Twitter, our Facebook accounts, um, our website itself, helping us post. We, we do a lot of writing. Um, so we do blog posts repeated, like, two or three a week. So they're helping us edit those, post those, format those, find the pictures, you know, all that stuff that just takes a ton of time that we don't have. So this concept of kind of outsourcing. Yeah. And and what was nice is that we get for this outsourcing, we're getting a team versus just hiring one person that has a specialty in one thing, Um, which, and we're paying them, you know, what we did was we kind of did an hourly rate to start for a couple months and to figure out, okay, how much are we really using? And then we decided, okay, now that we kind of know each other, let's see if we can come up with just a, a general monthly retainer fee based on the work that we're doing. Great. Justin, when I started in the business, what feels like a hundred years ago or so, we used this technology called the telephone <laughs> to call people <laughs> that didn't know who we were to, to pitch them what we were trying to pitch them. And a marketing campaign to us back then was getting a list, sitting on our desk, calling everybody and telling them what we were calling them for. And when we got to, through the last name, that was the end of, of the campaign. Today, a campaign, especially in your area of expertise, social media, is entirely different. And I know that you've done some very targeted campaigns with some of our network firms with phenomenal results. So if you could talk about the new version of the cold calling uh, campaign that I grew up with, that would be great. Sure. Well, well, I've never used a telephone ad, so uh, I, I, can't, I can't speak to that. But uh, in the digital world um, and, and running running both social media and search engine campaigns, really what the name of the game here is, is specific message to specific audience. Uh, the way that I like to think about it is uh, take yourself out of the digital world for a second and, uh, you know, just think about, you know, your normal life or the way that you typically conduct business and, you uh, Think about, you know, with every client meeting or every partner meeting or every prospect meeting, are you delivering the same message to each one of those groups, to each one of the individuals in each one of those specific groups? Absolutely not. So why why would you go about doing that in the digital world? Um, and being specific, um, being specific and being powered by data is a, is a really powerful position to be in because the data doesn't lie. Uh, when you're running a digital campaign, you have hard facts to guide your efforts and to understand what's working and what's not working. We've run, uh, we've run targeted campaigns uh, targeting a specific golf course using, uh, using geo-targeting, using the GPS coordinates of this golf course, delivering messaging uh, around retirement on the golf course. This is a specific message to a specific audience. These folks are on the golf course. They're getting golf they're getting a golf-specific messaging. We know the demographics of the members of this course, and we know how to speak to these people. Um, that's just one example. We've done the same thing for franchisee owners of, of uh, specific franchises. We've run campaigns to specific uh, technology entrepreneurs. But what's always important, again, bringing it back to empathy, is speaking the language of the audience that you're marketing to and then using the technology to effectively get in front of those folks. Yeah, and I think you've used that. Uh, with some of our firms, to phenomenal success. I, I, and I might ask you to talk to this. We, we know of one firm that focused on a tech company, I won't give the name, that was coming out with an IPO. Um, and I believe the whole campaign cost approximately $600, and they generated about $21 million of net new assets. If you could just talk to what that process was from the identifying of the list 
to the blog posts and the like that they had put out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so sort of the first component of running a campaign like that is doing some basic market research. Um, what my job is is to listen to our advisors uh, to understand their business goals. And in this case, the business goal was to uh, was to sign up clients from this specific tech firm who were located in a specific region between a specific age group, 20 and 35, and a director level or above at this firm. So that's a very specific audience. We've got a location filter, we've got an age filter, we've got a company filter, and we've got a title filter. So we've defined a really, really tight audience here of maybe only a, maybe only a thousand folks that fit this profile. So once we've defined that profile, really what the next question is, is how do, how do we resonate with these folks? Uh, how do we speak their language? And uh, in a lot of cases, this requires testing. Um, I have to say with this campaign, probably the first two or three uh, pieces of content, the first two or three graphics we put out were colossal failures. And that was the best part of the campaign because that failure is what allowed us to learn. That learning is what allowed us to refine. And that re refinement is what allowed us to uh, eventually tailor and adjust our messaging and our imagery to speak the language of that audience we saw through the data, through the clicks, likes, comments, shares, that that specific audience was, our message was resonating. They were reading the content and they were saying, this content is for me. It speaks so specifically to me and my business and my family and where I am in my life that I'm going to, I'm raising my hand in a digital fashion and I'm saying, I want to speak to you, advisory firm. I want to speak to you because you, you get me and I know you get me through the way that you're speaking to me through a digital channel. From there, uh, a lot of cases that digital hand raise is filling out a form saying, I want to get in touch with you. Uh, everything's integrate integrated these days. We integrate the social network with the CRM platform. In this case, it was salesforce.com. And uh, from there, the advisor uh, uh, sort of took that prospect through his, his normal business development cycle, closed a handful of these prospects. We saw what the AUM uh, attributed to this campaign was through those closes, what the revenue generated from this AUM is. And then, of course, we took that revenue number, we put it up against the cost of the campaign, which was around 600 bucks. Revenue number far exceeded the cost of the campaign. That's positive ROI. What does that mean? That means this whole test worked. Let's find 50 other tech companies that look like this one and scale this thing up and turn it into a real machine. And for this firm, that's become uh, essentially their primary source of business development is through this style of campaign. That's incredible. The world has changed quite a bit <laughs> since I was an advisor. Gordy, we've heard a lot or we've talked... Uh, a bit about websites and what that means, right? Whether, uh, as Justin said, LinkedIn or, or as Paul said, LinkedIn is where people might go to check you out first. The website still is really important. And we've seen technologies evolve tremendously inside of website de design and, and all of the functionality. If you could talk a little bit about what it means to, number one, architect a successful website and then the different technologies that you can incorporate into it. Yeah. Um, so uh, with any channel, uh, you know, whether it be, you know, your website, your, you know, your, your uh, social uh, media and marketing platform, uh, maybe even your uh, PR and communication strategy, right? Um, it's always good to take a step back and talk about the, the purpose, right? And the, the role and the goals, right, of, of what you're doing. And so, you know, when you sit down and think about a website, right, um, and certainly it being, you know, a, a main point of building legitimacy, right, and awareness uh, for an advisory firm, um, you know, we want to talk through, 
right? Kind of what we're what we need to deliver and how we want to deliver it, right? So I don't like to start with the technology, right? And you know, say, you know, should we have tracking tools and should it be, you know, linking in with with our CRM system? Um, I like to talk about, you know, what do we expect someone to do? How how do we want them to feel? And what do we want them to take away? Um, and to Justin's point, <clears throat> a lot of that can be driven, you know, by data, right? So we're not, you know, guessing at the start. And uh, one of the the great things we have at Dynasty, right, is a view and access to an aggregate set of data across the network. And you know what that tells us, right, is how people come and interact, right, and use websites. And uh, some interesting stats, um, you know, we find that a you know, people who on average come to a site across the Dynasty network, um, on average, I think, spend uh, just under two minutes uh, on the site. So that tells us right there, right, that we need to be extremely concise, right, to the extent that we can leverage technology, whether that be through video uh, or, you know, kind of looking at different ways to enhance the user experience. You know, we got to be quick, right? And so long form content, for example, is often not read. Um, you know, we need to think about, you know, ways that we can build the site, right, so that people can efficiently navigate it. Yeah, and, 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 and just to add to that point, Gordy, which I think is a really strong one, when, when we're thinking about navigating a website, there's really two sides to the two sides to that coin. Uh, side one is, is human navigation, uh, as Gordy talked about, and, and exactly to Gordy's point, we have a short period of time to inform those humans, the visitors to the site, uh, of the brand DNA and the specialties and the core competencies and the team of the firm etc. But I think a very uh, underlooked at component of a website that is extremely important, which is the other side of the coin, is the is the the meta component or the technical component of the website. And this is the way that a search engine would read the website, which is really, really different than the way that a human would read a, a website or the way that your browser on your computer would, would read a website. And an example of that, um, and something that's is is paramount to me is making sure that the technical performance of the website is where it needs to be. Um, and the reason that's important is because you could have the most gorgeous website in the world. It, the messaging could be perfect, but if that website isn't optimized for mobile, people can't do it. Can't read it on their on their iPhones. If it's not fast, if that thing takes seven seconds to load, the user won't even have the chance to engage with that beautiful messaging and that beautiful copy. So I think it's really important to treat uh, a website effort just like any marketing effort as both an art and a science because the technical components will often inform the human components. And just the one, the last thing I'll add to Justin's point on that too is, um, you know, a a lot of times, you know, people will, will go through all of the effort to build a site and, you know, and then it sits, right? Right, And, you know, months and months and months go by, right? And we're not looking at the data, right, in terms of the analytical tools we have at our disposal to, you know, understand how pages are being navigated, right, and, and where they're spending that time, you know, if in under two minutes. So I think it's a good practice to, um, A, make sure that, you know, you have uh, routinized reviews of your website, um, not just, again, from to Justin's point, from a messaging standpoint or a look and feel, but really dig into the data, right, and let the data share the story, right, and let the data help inform, right, uh, what you may need to update, um, where you may need to spend more time, right? We can tell you, for example, that, you know, through the data, 
um, the two top most visited pages on a website are the homepage and the team page, right? And so, you know, you really need to dig in and make sure that, you know, everything on that homepage, right, is crisp, it's clean, it's clear, right? And then naturally, right, when they, they look at that message, right, they often want to go and see who works at the firm, right? And to Paul's earlier point, right, you know, leveraging simple, you know, data and UX design in terms of thinking about where you want people to go next, right? And so if we know LinkedIn is a highly trafficked area or a highly utilized area, having the synergy between your website and your LinkedIn profile, right, is incredibly valuable. Um, but again, just going back to it's not a set it and forget it experience. Right. You, the firm, right, have to be also an active participant in the ongoing development of the site. Yeah, and and just to just to go right back at that, I mean, a lot of times when you're speaking, you know, about data and analysis and intelligence, uh, those words can can feel can feel scary and can potentially feel unsurmountable or, or up in the clouds. And I think it's really important to make a tactical point here that. A lot of the, uh, the the core competency of many of the service providers, uh, a tool like Google Analytics, which is a free website tracking tool, the goal of these software designers is to allow a normal person to analyze and interpret the data. The days of having to write JavaScript or SQL or Python or any sorts of code are, are really gone. And and uh, really, with the, again, the goal of, of these of these analytics companies is to empower people like us to have the capability to perform these types of analysis without a super robust technical ability. Um, so I think it's really important to take a look at the tools out there, realize that a lot of these tools aren't as technical as they may seem, and maybe not be afraid to uh, to experiment with these tools, especially because in a lot of cases, they're, they're no-cost tools that are designed for a non-technical person. That's great. Paul, you, you've always or in the past you've referred to yourself at times as kind of a tech geek so i'm sure you understood a lot of what justin uh, <laughs> said so you know to me java was a cup of coffee and python was a yeah. snake i lost <laughs> everything else in between at consensus though you've had tremendous growth this year and and last year um and certainly the trajectory is is upward from there if you could talk a little bit about what you're doing today that maybe you weren't doing three years ago and touching on what Justin talked about, how you guys, uh, again, are incorporating technology into that marketing effort. And I know you've brought a couple of younger folks on board, uh, too, to help you with those efforts. Yeah, so the, the first thing we did, which isn't really techie, <laughs> is we, we concentrated on it. Um, I think it's really easy to kind of get lost in the business and you just don't do it anymore. You, you don't make those outbound calls to the, to the guy that you met six months ago. And so we, re- we use our CRM in particular. Um, the minute we meet someone, we put in notes, how we met them, who, who they are, and we're setting reminders for ourselves to follow up. What I think has changed is, is the method in which we then try to follow up and the tools that we're using to, to try and to, to connect with the people. Um, when I talked about LinkedIn a little earlier, um, that's something that we'd always done in the past. You know, we had a LinkedIn page, each of us, and we would connect with people at random. If I was bored one night, I'd go on and be like, oh, let me connect with that guy because the, the tool recommended it. And what we're doing now is we're, you know, we're, we're focusing on that and we're dedicating time to it. So I think that just in and of itself is the, is the first thing where we are specifically saying like we have to 
do this every day. We have to make calls. We have to connect to so many people and we track it and we track now how many conversations we're having, um, who, you know, what the success rate is with those who were moving through kind of our, our phases of marketing. Um, we've brought in a, uh, email marketing program. So we use Pardot, which is a add on works really well with Salesforce, which is our CRM so that we can better deliver the email messages, see that in our CRM, see kind of the usage and start to score who's interacting and who's not. Um, that's relatively new for us. Um, we're not sophisticated enough yet where we're taking that information and, and, you know, directing them to different campaigns yet, but we are looking at, all right, well, who has, you know, scored better. So when someone may be clicking on an email and we're sending out, you know, our distribution list to 5,000 people, it's hard to know over time who's really been interacting. And we've looked at the scores to say, okay, you know, we've noticed that Joe, who we've talked to in the past, and he's kind of been in our in our database for a couple of years, um, he's really been like reading some of our stuff. Well, I let my brother know, and he floats Joe a call, maybe on a birthday or maybe just a, an email, just like, hey, Joe, we haven't talked in a while. Maybe we can get together for lunch. And lo and behold, you know, Joe's been reading our stuff, and he's like, yeah, it's funny you, you called me today. Mm-hmm. What a I've coincidence. Been, I've been yeah. reading your stuff. What a coincidence. Um, so we're doing more of that. Um, we're also right now in kind of the early stages of – um, the thing we struggle with and you read about all the time is you, you gotta, you gotta come up with your niche, right? You gotta, you know, if you're, if you want to work with plumbers, just work with plumbers and don't work with anybody else. And you're going to be the guy for plumbers. And I think we all struggle with, well, we don't, I don't really have, we don't have a specialty. We work with people that we like and people in our area. Um, and they can be younger and they can be middle-aged and they can be older. What we've started to do, um, though, is really break them down by age and say we've, we've really divided it right now into four components. The one we're concentrating on right now in particular is you know, the 65 and older, which there's a whole thing that we're working with the MITH lab on, um, but the, and they call them these are the explorer years. Um, so we're developing a whole marketing campaign. My brother's going to be writing a book about it. Um, and so we're going to target specifically the message so when we, we get – Again, we meet Joe, or Joe connects us one on LinkedIn, and he's going to go into our email campaign. Uh, he's going to get more targeted, our blog posts that relate to someone who's 65 or older. Um, we meet Larry, and Larry is 45, and he's an executive. He's going to go into a drip campaign that's focused around the, the, the middle age years of the, when you're in the peak of your kind of earning years, most likely your kids are now about to be out of the house or out of the house to the challenges that, that you'd face in that age. And then we're doing one for kind of the emerging wealth, the younger, you know, 30 to 45 year old set, but they've got a different set of challenges. They're just starting their career. They just got married. They just started to have kids. Um, the challenges they have. So they're going to get a specific marketing channel that's back to Justin's point of, you know, delivering something that's targeted to them where before, and even, you know, today what we're doing is just sending them our, our stuff and hope that something works. What we're trying to fine tune is, okay, let's send them. We've written a lot of stuff. Let's fine tune which stuff we're delivering to segment A, segment B and segment C. So it's not a niche Um, per se, but it's a focused uh, material. And yeah. uh, Yep. And, and, you know, so Ed, I, I want to make that word focus, uh, and, and Paul, you just brought this up to where we place our focus and our prioritization. 
And just to a point I made when we when we started this conversation around marketing, you know, often just you know being an extension or viewed as a component of business development. Even a lot of what we've talked about over the past half an hour or so has been about business development and bringing in new clients. And I think it's important for for people to also focus as we think about the customer decision journey, right? So you know, it's not just about building awareness and consideration, right, and education for your brand to bring somebody in, but what happens after they sign on the line, right? What does the first 30 days look like and how can marketing play a role, right, even if it's onboarding paperwork, et cetera, right, to uh, continue to deliver and establish your brand message, right? How are you celebrating successes in the first year, right? Looking at your reporting, right? You know, how does your brand and your, your brand DNA show up on that as you think about client experience, right? Uh, branding is an accumulation of touch points and experiences. Ideally, when you think about, right, that, that the, the client uh, and partner experience post them signing on the line, right? Ultimately, we're building advocacy, right? You have clients out there sharing your brand DNA, right? They're, they become a referral source. You're lowering attrition, right? So I would just really encourage people, right, to not stay only focused on business development, but really see the importance, right, of the entire customer decision journey. I think that's... Ned, if I, go ahead. If Paul. I could jump in on that, um, to, I totally agree with what Gordy was just saying, that what I was just talking about, like the different segments of our marketing pieces, we plan to send them to our clients too. So our clients that are over the age of 65, we, we've written a whole bunch of blog posts about aging. Well, we want to make sure that they, you know, it's, 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 first of all, it's beneficial to them, but secondly, they're our best marketing team. <laughs> you know, if we have a client who talks to their friend about, Hey, we work with Consentus and they're awesome and they really understand me and my needs and our our marketing pieces um, reinforce that. That's that's the best thing. That's the best marketing we can have. Um, so so we don't just refine it to to Gordy's point of just new. You know, bringing in new leads. We also want to make sure that branding and that imagery and the things that we're sending out are are useful for, to the clients that we already have, so that they have the tools and the reminder that we're great and they should be sharing us out to their friends. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. Um... And, and to Gordy's point and your follow-up, Paul, this many people think about marketing of bringing in new clients, new assets, new relationships into the firm, but it really is about the retention of it and kind of the net promoter score that a lot of people are familiar with, referring you out and kind of building from within and what you brought on board. This has been a great conversation around marketing. I appreciate everybody's time. I'm going to go around the horn uh, one last time, and I want to hear one of your top takeaways, right? The people that are listening, what is the one thing you'd like them to think about as they think about their marketing journey and what they're going to be doing going forward? So, Gordy, I'll turn to you first. <laughs> Great. Um, so, uh, you know, the one thing I would just want people to, to always remember, um, and Ed, you asked this about where do I start, right? What do I do? And that is to, you know, bring marketing to the table early and often, Right. So that when we're thinking about the overall, you know, strategy for the business, the goals for the business, we're having strategic and informed conversations on the role 
marketing can play, right, in supporting the goals of your business. When you start there and when you align, again, marketing becomes an investment and not a cost. Yeah, and I would probably take it, just that concept of cost a little, a, a little bit step further. And what, one of the things we hear from advisors an awful lot uh, in the field is, you know, all the things we've talked about, uh, you know, uh, Paul at Consensus puts an awful lot of content out there. But they do a fantastic job of writing really interesting content. And the 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 hint I would give to, to advisors out there is, Everything like that can be outsourced. You know, if you if you're if you're not confident enough, or you don't have the time uh, to actually write content yourself or create content, there's numerous services out there that essentially can ghostwrite um, this for you, and it's all exceptionally cheap. You know, there's essentially been a price war in the industry, so you can actually get quite a lot uh, for a relatively short amount of money. That's wonderful, Data Geek. I would say uh, don't be uh, don't be afraid to take risks and don't be afraid to fail because. Uh, we're still in the early innings uh, in in this in this digital style of marketing in the RIA space, and the firms that fail quickly learn quickly. The firms that learn quickly are the ones that are going to be ahead of the pack once this style of marketing continues to really mature and goes from something that is an idea to something that is a necessity. Wonderful. In our closing comment, I'm going to turn again to the exotic location of King of Prussia, <laughs> PA, and and Paul Strid, who's there with. His, his father and his brother implementing all of this on a day-to-day basis and seeing the results. So, Paul, what's the one takeaway you'd like everybody to, uh, to think about? So I would kind of piggyback on what was already said, that kind of two components. One is um, view it as an investment, not an expense. It's, it's not something marketing isn't something you should be doing occasionally when you think about it and you have a free moment. Um, you can do that. It's not going to be as effective. And then the second one is to kind of piggyback off of what Justin said is being afraid to fail of the idea of don't set yourself up for thinking, oh, you're going to do this thing and you're going to get all these clients all of a sudden. Um, don't be discouraged by it. It, it takes a long time. Um, you got to kiss a lot of frogs in some cases, trying things, or it just takes a long time like to, to move someone to change advisors or to actually realize that they need an advisor. It could take them a year, two, three years of getting your message over and over and over again. So don't be discouraged by, and we've been victims of that as well. We tried, we're all hot on something. We tried it and it just didn't work. We didn't get anyone to attend a seminar or they didn't, you know, no one clicked to get the free thing. And some of that is just A-B testing, right? Of trying to figure out, okay, that didn't work. Let's, let's adjust it. Um, just don't expect right off the bat to get 50 people knocking on your door because you put out and you're starting to advertise on Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever it may be. You got to stick with it. It takes a long time. And I think you're, you're building your brand along the way and maybe you run into, and this has happened to us. You run into, you know, some guy on the lacrosse field or football field and you meet him. He's like, Oh, I've seen your name around. I've seen consensus. I don't know kind of how or where or why, but I, I know I know you guys. And there you go. And there's your, you know, there's the beginning of a relationship. Well, great. Thank you, Paul. And I want to thank all of our panelists uh, today. I appreciate the discussion. I think it's been a great conversation. Thank I want to thank each of you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. I hope you found today's episode entertaining, informative, and helpful. And if you have any comments, questions, or would like to connect with Dynasty or any of our guests, 
please contact us at podcast at dynastyfp.com. That's podcast at dynastyfrankpeter.com. We look forward to you joining us on our next podcast. And until then, remember, at Dynasty, we live our American dream by helping you realize your American dream.